80 Proof Politics is brought to you by Evergreen Productions. You can find this and several other fascinating podcasts at evergreenpodcast.com. You know, we are also seeing, Bill, I'm just going to be very honest, that yes, there are employees that are upset and may catch wind of something and, and voice their concern, but much of what we've seen in the last two and a half years has been a very orchestrated campaign by outside groups that want business packs out of the picture. On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of policy advocates working behind the scenes. Each week, one of these advocates and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Well, welcome to 80 Proof Politics. I'm Bill Shute. And if you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know that I don't return to previous locations. But when my guest today suggested that we come to Landini Brothers, I couldn't say no. I mean, this is literally my favorite restaurant in Old Town, Alexandria. First of all, it's been family-owned since 1979. It is in a building that dates back to 1775. But if you want old-school Tuscany appetite-filling meals and hospitality and fantastic service, Landini Brothers is the place for you. In fact, this is the home of my favorite meal in Northern Virginia. It's their lobster with tomato cream sauce, and it's not always on the menu, but you can ask, and sometimes they'll make it. The only thing I ask is that if you're going to come do that, let me know first so I can order and make sure they don't run out. And the real reason we're here today is because my guest, Michaela Isler, said, how about Landini Brothers, when I asked, where do you want to do the podcast? And I am so thrilled you did. Michaela, welcome to 80 Proof. Thanks so much for having me. So good to have you here. Michaela is executive director of NABPAC, National Association of Business Political Action Committees. And we're going to get into the role that she plays at that, but... Let me just start, Michaela, by asking, what is the role of a PAC in today's political environment? You know, Bill, there's a number of different roles. Um, but first and foremost, you know, a, a PAC is a tool in your overall government relations program. Uh, whether you're doing get out the vote, voter registration, lobbying at the state or federal level, your PAC serves as an opportunity for you and your team to develop relationships on an ongoing basis and really work with your employees or member organizations if you're part of a trade association to not only educate about the issues but get involved, get engaged in the political process. The B in that PAC stands for business PACs, but there are other types of PACs, right? Explain the kind of the global environment of political action committees. So there are actually around 7,800 PACs and super PACs registered with the Federal Election Commission. And I mention super PACs because we often get lumped into 
super PAC activity. And I would just say for your listeners, they couldn't be more different. While super PACs have the word PAC in their name, they are really independent expenditure committees Mm -hmm. and operate very differently than our PACs. Business PACs and NABPAC really was created uh, in the aftermath of the Federal Election Campaign Act in the 1970s and the counter to the labor movement. A group of businessmen came together and decided that if this was going to be something that went into statute, that the business community also need to have a say in how we were regulated and structured. So thank goodness that there were you know, a group of folks that came together to really provide us that opportunity so that we could also have a seat at the table when it came time to uh, negotiating uh, the Federal Election Campaign Act. You know, I think that you raise a great point because that's something that most people don't realize is that the concept of PACs actually began with labor unions back in the New Deal era, right? It did. Actually, even in the 70s, PACs were not new to the scene. They really came on the scene in the 1940s because a group of small dollar donors wanted to be able to pool their resources to support the re-election of President Roosevelt. And so it wasn't until the 1970s that they put some parameters and structure and accountability around how those PACs operate. So then what role does NAMPAC play to serve that community? So really twofold. We are the only trade association that is set up to lobby on behalf of the business PAC community. And I get asked all the time, what the heck are y'all lobbying about? Yeah, right. That was going to be one of my questions. (laughs) So really and truly, we've been uh, in every single and a part of every single campaign finance debate since the 1970s, since the Federal Election Campaign Act was enacted. Um, You know, it kind of has ebbed and flowed over the years. But I guess what I would say to you is that for the most part, business PACs have been, and and really separate segregated funds since they were created in the 70s, have been relatively left untouched. And I would argue that that is because we are really the model of reform. And and it has been a model that has worked for 45 years. So that leads into my next question, because I want to talk about your advocacy and the issues that are important to the PAC community. Uh, One thing that a loyal listener wanted me to ask was there's a difference right now between what individuals can contribute to a campaign versus what a PAC can. And while the individual level is lower than a PAC, if it's a couple, they're actually able to give more than a PAC, right? Are you engaged in trying to get the limits of contributions to more accurately reflect today's environment? It is and has been a number one priority for NAPAC over the years. Um, there have been a number of sort of start and stops to being able to see that come to reality. Um, obviously, in the last couple of years, just given the makeup of Congress, um, who's in the White House, uh, and honestly because of the aftermath of the events of January 6th, the business PAC community has really been on defense these last couple of years. Right. Um, I will tell you, though, that our board of directors recently met for our strategic planning over the next three to five years and really is going to be a focus of NAPAC to be moving away from defense and back to offense. Okay. Examples. What specifically do you mean? Well, primarily a proactive legislative agenda. Okay. Understanding, Bill, that it's going to be a tall order and money in politics today is, is a tough subject. Well, yeah, let's talk about that for a sec, because, you know, you can't deny that there's this conception out there, you might call it a misconception, that PACs are bad for the process. It's certainly the super PAC 
movement has accentuated that argument. And in fact, I noticed you participated in a, a panel recently where that was a key topic. This is all I've been talking about for the last three years, <laughs> truthfully. Um, and I also am an adjunct professor at uh, George Washington University. I teach the graduate course PACS in Congress. And I part of the reason why I wanted to take on that challenge and responsibility was to begin to really educate our younger generation coming out of college about the realities of how we operate and to try to dispel those myths because we really are the most transparent, accountable form of political giving outside of individual giving. We are Every penny that comes in the door, every penny that goes out is reported to the Federal Election Commission. Uh, we are uh, limited in how much we can actually give and receive. And so a lot of times folks think, oh, this is just run by CEOs, and the CEOs are spending all kinds of money to fund yeah. these PACs. Or the corporation. Or the corporation is giving money. And one, it is against federal law for corporations to provide any funds directly to the Political Action Committee. Now, for a corporation, the administrative expenses, of running that PAC can be absorbed by the corporation. That is another big differentiator between us and super PACs because super PACs can take unlimited funds from any entity, but they cannot use that money to go directly to candidates. And right. they cannot SB coordinate. Right. right. So that's why they're independent expenditure committees. So they can't coordinate with a campaign. They can't give directly to the campaign. But their dollars are also reported to the Federal Election Commission. But that is a major difference because... It takes us hundreds, if not thousands, of employees to donate their personal dollars up to $5,000 a year. That is the max that they can give to a PAC. So, um, yes, CEOs and executives tend to give at the maximum level, not in all cases, but in many cases, because you really do need that executive buy-in to have an effective PAC. But the yeah, At the average, same time, you can't coerce employees to give if they don't care what's happening politically. It's purely voluntary. And we are required by the Federal Election Commission to ensure that that is communicated both orally and written, that your contributions are purely voluntary and there is no, th you know, no threat of reprisal should you choose not to give. We also are limited. I just had a question at a, another event that I was speaking at last week because if you go back to the 70s when we were in negotiations for this Federal Election Campaign Act, one of the things that came out of those negotiations was that corporations could only solicit eligible employees within the corporation. Right. And I do believe... Okay, define eligible employees. So it's basically right. your managerial supervisory employees. Exempt employees is really kind of what it boils down to. Not in all cases, but in most cases. And I do believe that was initially, probably the labor unions felt that that was a protection for your hourly employees who just didn't have the means potentially to give any amount to the pack. But it's interesting. I've had employees say to me that they don't feel included and they feel left out. They've heard about the pack, but they're not allowed to give and they feel like they're almost, it's almost like, I don't want to say a second class citizen, but it does feel like they've been separated out as not as elevated enough yeah. in an organization to be able to participate. So does NAPAC help members 
with marketing suggestions yes. and how to advertise to the employee base? Absolutely. So part of your initial question at the outset was what do we do? Part of it is the lobbying, and that is a major piece of what we do and advocating on behalf of the business pack community. But the other part, a very large part of what we do is we are convener, we coalesce our members together, we talk about best practices, whether it is related to fundraising strategies, communication strategies, legal and compliance, DEI, all of that. We uh, provide expertise and we also convene our members together and round the classic roles of an associate. Absolutely. All of our members come from different backgrounds and different legislative priorities. Yeah. We represent the banking industry, the defense industry, doctors, dentists, insurers, healthcare companies. So we come together on campaign finance issues. How much, if any, did the pandemic have an impact on PACs? Well, we definitely anecdotally saw some dips. However, the PAC profession is just incredibly agile and you know, we helped immediately moving into a virtual environment. How can we support our members during this time? Having been a PAC professional for many years in my career, um, really gave me an opportunity to really think through what would our members, like if I was running a PAC right now in this environment, what would I need from my trade yeah, association? Good question. So we've been able to really jump in. Um, I think one of the very first webinars we did was how to manage a pack through a crisis because this wasn't necessarily the first crisis because we had 9-11, we had the financial crisis. And so while different and we hadn't been through a global pandemic, we assembled some PAC practitioners who had lived through those times. And the resounding theme was do not stop communicating. You may not be able to meet in person You may not even be able to solicit this year, or maybe it's a softer solicitation. Maybe it's only targeted to your executives, but do not stop. And there was a lot of legislation moving to help our country get through this difficult time. So everybody was lobbying on a particular issue that was going to impact their organization. So the issues didn't stop. So while there were some dips in participation, uh, our our PAC directors really moved in and pulled off virtual fundraising events, pulled together virtual legislative visits and legislative action days, which was just spectacular. I mean, it really was. And there were some that were kind of early adopters of that. And then, of course, we were able to bring them in on a number of different panels to talk about, like, lessons learned uh, so that the rest of our members could take, you know, what they could and, and, and implement it within their organizations. If you were still wearing a hat you used to wear as a PAC director, what would be your salient argument to get employees to participate in the process? You know, of course, for every PAC manager, it's going to depend on your mission, your culture, and all that. But but I, what I have found always worked for me and still works to this day is that we need more people at the table solving the public policy issues of this country, probably now more than ever. This is an opportunity for you to ensure that your organization has a seat at the table, whether you like it or not, your organization's <laughs> whether Whether or not you like what the table looks like at the moment. Absolutely. But... Your organization and as an employee of that organization, you don't want your adversaries making up the rules for how you operate. And what does that mean in the long run? Your organization that gives back to the community. I mean, I know corporations are considered not super popular right now for a number of reasons in the media. 
but you think about what these companies do in their communities and the amount that they give back and the opportunities that employees have for even you know, further professional development and the amount of resources that are provided to you to grow and learn as a professional. Um, it's job security. It's making sure that you and your family can continue to enjoy the lifestyle that you have because you work for this great company and they're able to advocate on your behalf and behalf of their customers. Join us after this short break to find out how PACs respond to the policy challenges facing our country today. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well-known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the Presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern-day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found, and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You know, you said at the outset, or early on, that most people don't think of there their being a need for advocacy when it comes to PACs, when it comes to the rules, the regulations, the laws. And I noticed on your website that you have a section dedicated to advocacy, and it lists issues, and there's a member of portal where they can keep track of what's happening up here as well. But there was a phrase on that page that caught my attention. Four decades of reform, and that had quotes around it, if I recall correctly. Four decades of reform, complex legal decisions, and contradictory regulatory rulemakings have created a patchwork funding system out of sync with high costs of running for public office. Explain that, if you would. I mean, we can all appreciate that running for political office is a huge expense. But you're suggesting here that PACs aren't, are very limited in helping with that? Well, we are because if you just look at what we talked about earlier, that our amount of money that we can give to candidates has never been indexed for inflation. The cost of running a campaign today compared to the 1970s is exponentially higher. And you hit the nail on the head earlier, Bill, when you said a couple can actually give more money to a candidate than a PAC. So two people can give more money than hundreds of thousands of employees. But don't we want to encourage more individual participation in the political process? Absolutely. So I think that is the essence of that quote, is that, you know, we need to get back to, it's, it's a, it's an accountable, transparent form of giving in the process. And I think that if you look at legal precedent, which you could probably talk a little bit about more than I, but, you know, every other form of giving has been indexed for inflation, but not PACs. And so that is a legislative priority, has been since for 45 years and will continue to be for NAPAC. I can't imagine that's politically popular. <laughs> no, we recognize that it's, it's going to be, it's a challenge. Um, but we are committed to that, and we're going to continue to fight for that. And I think with the way the courts are made up today, 
there may be some opportunities. When you talk about challenges, it strikes me that some of the biggest challenges that you might be facing as an association right now is shareholder activism and consumer outcries for changes coming from many different fronts over the past couple of years. You get the January 6th insurrection. You've got the, a real shareholder push for green energy responses. And then now abortion has become a hot topic in terms of activism and motivating people in this upcoming midterm. How does NABPAC advise their members to deal with that? Well, this is also something that I've spent most of the last two and a half years on. And I will tell you, it's not easy. Uh, But this is why it is so important that PACs go back to the basics. You need to make sure that you have a diversified PAC board of directors. You need to make sure that your governance is in order. Do you have bylaws? Do you have governing documents? Do you have contribution criteria outlined? Is your board of directors trained and educated on how you operate as an organization and how your PAC operates? Is your board meeting frequently Is it just your lobbyists that are making decisions on where the PAC gives, which I would argue when I first came to town 20-some-odd years ago, that's kind of what we saw mostly. But I would say in the last 20 years, we've seen a real diversification of PAC boards for that very reason. And January 6th and some of the most recent social issues really hasn't been the first time that PACs have been dealing with a lot of these social issues and employees that are upset about the PAC giving. So we've been a little bit... I wouldn't say ahead of the curve because no one could have predicted January 6th and then the aftermath of basically corporations being blamed for the insurrection. However, the social issues had been percolating for many, many years, and so we've been dealing and working through that with with our employees. I will say that having your employee resource groups, your chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officers potentially on your board of directors, you want to have a diversified thought and background on your board to have those difficult conversations when it comes time to who we're supporting for elected office. And there may be people on there that on one side of the house, you know, they may be sponsoring a bill. They may be very supportive of issues of yours, but then over here, there may be some really concerning rhetoric or actions that maybe have had taken place in the past that maybe you wouldn't have known. Maybe your lobby team just wouldn't have known were it not for having this diverse board of directors that can bring some of these issues to the forefront. And I think that it's just an opportunity to have the conversations that need to be had and have a well-informed final decision that everybody can defend, that everybody can get behind. And if there are questions, if there are challenges to those decisions, you can point back to a very solid governing set of documents, a solid board of directors. We've had regular conversation about this. We've vetted these candidates. doesn't solve every issue, but I think it also helps your organization go into those conversations prepared. And I would just say your PAC also's mission statement should be very much aligned with your organization's that makes mission sense. statement. Yeah. Now, are you aware of instances where employees have outright challenged Absolutely. PAC contribution decisions? Absolutely. Okay. And, you know, that's it's been a tough couple of years, particularly for PAC directors, because they're the ones that are getting that pushback. Um, we have seen incredible response to one-on-one conversations, reaching out back, you know, 
when you and I grew up, you know, we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have technology, we didn't have email. And so we had to have a face-to-face conversation. And it's hard to do, but almost, and this is anecdotal, but in almost every instance in the last two and a half years where a PAC director picked up the phone and had a conversation with a disgruntled employee, it ended a lot better than it started. Oh, good. You know, we are also seeing, Bill, I'm just going to be very honest, that yes, there are employees that are upset and may catch wind of something and, and voice their concern. But much of what we've seen in the last two and a half years has been a very orchestrated campaign by outside groups that want business packs out of the picture. So it's not necessarily in every situation kind of an organic grassroots campaign. So our packs have had to get creative. They've held town halls. They've had small group meetings. They've engaged in surveys um, to really gauge, particularly with their donors, but also with their non-donors. Like, how do you want us to handle social issues? Where do you want us to be as an organization on some of these? And interestingly, most employees, again, anecdotally, will say, I want my organization to focus on the issues of importance to the company. Well, if anyone out there is interested in learning more about PACs and the role, I highly recommend Michaela's podcast, Facts About PACs. It is a weekly series that explores PACs to a level of detail that most people don't appreciate, and yet there's something fascinating out of every episode. So I would encourage you to do that. Coming up next... Michaela tells us about how she got started in politics and how the housing financial crisis was actually good for her marriage. Now, as I noted at the outset, Michaela, you've only been doing this about three years, but you've been involved in PACs internally and in larger association sense. For much longer than that. Uh, real quickly, working backwards, let's say you were uh, assistant vice president for the American Property Casualty Insurance Association. You worked there for a total of nine years, right? Prior to that with HSBC, government affairs and PAC director, again, about nine years. So you're really coming into this with a wealth of experience, right? But how'd you get your start? What was the first gig right out of college for you? Well, you might appreciate this, Bill. So in college, I had an older sorority sister who was volunteering. Actually, she was working for a railroad commissioner candidate, Mary Scott Neighbors. Oh, okay. And let me, a little footnote, sidebar here, right? If, if you're not familiar with Texas state politics, railroad commissioner sounds like, why would we still be? But this is like the public utility Stronghold. This is where everything from telecommunications to cable TV, it goes to the Railroad Commission. So she asked if I would come volunteer. And, you know, I grew up, my dad was a general officer. I moved around the entire world. And while it wasn't running for office per se, uh, it was very political. And um, we kind of, my whole life, we were running for general officer, truthfully, Mm. as a family. But we were also always very interested. We around the dinner table would talk about foreign affairs and domestic policy, and I couldn't wait uh, until I could vote for the first time when I turned 18. And so when I had this opportunity to go sit in on a campaign and help volunteer, I mean, I literally was stuffing envelopes and 
stamping envelopes. I mean, it was, and it was a Democrat. I was a Republican yeah. in college, Lord. but I went and helped out, and, and as they say, the bug bit me. And so um, I continued to help where needed on that campaign. And then uh, upon graduation from the University of Texas, uh, a friend of mine just happened to mention that she was working at the Republican Party of Texas. And I immediately perked up and said, if there was ever an opportunity just to volunteer, I would love to get my foot in the door. And the literally the weekend of graduation, probably three months after I made that comment, I got a frantic phone call, as you do in politics, <laughs> and there had been an opening for literally just an admin yeah. position. My Front parent, desk kind of job, yeah. phones, Oh, no, when the, when the copy machine broke down and it said, please see key copy operator, that was me. That was okay, got it. And I was the best damn key copy operator <laughs> there was. But my parents were literally flying um, from Korea to Austin for my graduation, and I got asked to go in for a job. I had no earthly idea what the heck I was going to do after graduation. I hadn't confirmed a job. I pulled my resume together and went down, and I was I was literally hired on the spot. That's great. Okay. So you worked that campaign, got the political bug, hadn't decided to move to D.C. yet. No. No, I, I thought I was going to be, having moved around my whole life, you know, I went to high school in San Antonio. Friday Night Lights was, I mean... I loved every second of Texas, and I knew I had to go back to Texas. So um, I really thought I was in Austin for the rest of my life. Yeah, boy, I know that feeling. <laughs> Such a spectacular city, especially at that time. It's changed a lot. But um, I, I really did not have a plan. And I know that that sounds kind of crazy, but I really, and looking back over these almost 30 years, I've, I've really seized opportunities as they've come along. But I was at the Republican Party for three years, and I was 21 years old. I was green as they come. Um, George W. Bush had just been elected governor. It was a whole new leadership. Okay, we're like 95 now? Yes, okay. 1995. And, um, in fact, a lot of people were advising me to not work there for a number of different political reasons. But they gave me an opportunity that probably no 21-year-old would have should have had business doing so um my boss unfortunately was involved in a very tragic accident and um within two weeks of being hired i was basically promoted oh, wow. and i was put in charge of the 1996 uh state convention oh. which at the time was the largest political convention in the country it may actually still be today but you know 1996 presidential yeah. Every presidential candidate was coming through Texas. We had 20,000 delegates and alternates, and oh I gosh. had no earthly idea what the heck I was doing. But I put my head down, and I went to San Antonio, which is where the convention was, pretty much on a weekly basis. I negotiated our hotel contracts with 20 different properties in <laughs> San Antonio. I mean, I had some oversight and certainly had yeah, sure, a, a, a planning committee, but I really— trial by fire. I mean, it was anyway. trial by fire. So I no sooner come off that camp after that convention, and they ask me to be the convention delegate to the Republican National Convention in San Diego. So here I am, now probably 22, 23, and I'm just like, I can't believe I'm going to San Diego. And, right. you know, we had every, I mean, every political 
powerhouse come through our convention and activities for our delegates and alternates. So, um, and from there, I got into finance and fundraising, and I, I, raise, I helped raise money for the state party. So we had a pretty extensive in-house direct mail program, uh, and then also all of our major donor giving, and um, learned a lot, learned a tremendous amount. Direct mailing and calling people during dinner. Those were the two We had ways, a telemarketing right? center. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then how did you end up in D.C.? It was really random. I, um, when I went to TAB, they, asked, they hired me basically to resurrect their dormant state PAC. And again, no earthly idea really what a PAC was. I For knew, sure. I mean, I understood campaign finance from a campaign perspective, a political party perspective, but I had never run a PAC before. And so they asked if I'd resurrect their PAC, and I was looking for resources. And one of our federal lobbyists in D.C. said, you know, Michaela, you might want to look at, there's a couple of groups in D.C., NABPAC, Public Affairs Council, they have a bunch of conferences. Went to the conference, and I became um, close with the head of the Public Affairs Council's conference. And he had gotten a phone call from then Household Finance, um, who they were looking for a new PAC director. And he just said to her, you know, I just met this woman who's raising a ton of money in Texas at the state pack. And if she's doing that for a state pack, you might want to talk to her. So she called me. It was literally a cold call. And I had never heard of household finance. Um, And she said, I'm so glad you answered the phone. Would you ever consider moving to Washington, D.C.? And it was just, I did feel like at that time I'd been like five years about in Austin post-graduation. And I did... I, I was starting to wonder what my next step was going to right. be. Boy, we can all appreciate that. Yeah. So you did that, and then you eventually get into association work. There had to be well, a transitional path. I had other opportunities to go run other PACs, but I honestly felt like I I really had run my course on PAC and grassroots management by that time. Really? Why was that? Was it just becoming the same thing over It wasn't as challenging. I think when HSBC acquired Household, that presented a whole new challenge because the it was a foreign-owned, you know, British-run bank and primarily in New York, not natural joiners of a pack. Right. <laughs> so it was a challenge. Um, and I really felt like I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do in the future. And they said, you know, we might want to consider moving you to the state lobbying team. And so at 35 years old... Um, I, I seized that opportunity and moved. I, they actually moved me to Atlanta. But something interesting happened. Um, the financial crisis oh, sure. hit about a year after I moved to Atlanta. And um, while HSBC didn't have to take any of the TARP funds, uh, HSBC made a very drastic decision and they shut down the entire U.S. operation. Really? all the household finance business. So I actually um, had to look for a new job. It's probably one of the most challenging times in my life because I had just been tapped high potential. I, they moved me to Atlanta. I'm starting this new path that I loved, by the way. I loved state lobbying. Um, and now I'm stuck in Atlanta where I don't have a lot of contacts. It's not as robust of a political environment as it is here, obviously, in D.C. Right. Um, but fortunately, long story short, I ended up um, getting picked up by the association, Property Casualty Insurance Association, and it was 
one of those things where I thought I can do anything for a year because if you remember, nobody was hiring. I mean, this was like there were not a lot of jobs in the government. No, not at all. If and let's touch on that a little deeper, if you would. So you're in Atlanta and you end up with an association in D.C. That just didn't happen. You must have been working. Oh, I, yeah. I what were some of the, the tricks that you used at that point? As far as how I got my job yeah. at Peace Hand? Well, yeah. interestingly, um, there were a couple of insurance companies that also had a consumer finance division. Okay. And so they were part of a lot of the state trade associations. And while I was still working, we had found out that basically we had several months, but we were pretty much going to be done as of July 1st. I spent the next three to four months just networking the heck out of yeah, it's hard. It's hard to ask people yeah, for help. Yeah, it is. Yeah, um, it's humbling. And one of my colleagues in the insurance space who happened to be in the consumer finance business said, you know, this association's looking for a state lobbyist in Atlanta to open their Atlanta office. And I was not really all that gung-ho about it, but I, I had to entertain it because there just weren't that many options. And, you know, I interviewed with them, and uh, it was... I thought, you know, I can do anything for a year. I'll do this for a year and maybe reassess. And as you mentioned at the outset, Bill, I was there almost 10 years. It was the best job. I probably, outside of the one I'm in now, I it was an incredible experience. They were so good to me. Um, I worked harder than I ever had. And I'm a hard worker, but I, I worked harder than I probably ever had. It, they were tough issues. Sure. The states were challenging, um, especially for the insurance industry. Um, but I loved it. And actually two years in, I opened their Atlanta office two years in, my boss called me up. It was actually a couple of weeks before my wedding and my husband and I, who was living here still, he's my, my fiance at the time, didn't really feel like we could make any changes for me to leave Atlanta because I, you know, I was so new in the job. They hired me to be in Atlanta and so I just was like, we'll continue to be long distance, and then we'll figure out what to do. And my boss called and said, you know what? I want to move you back to D.C., and I want you to take over New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Oh, boy. <laughs> Which was a big culture shock. Yeah. Um, but it was also a, an incredible opportunity for me to get back to D.C. and be you know, basically reunited with my husband. Yeah, that's great. You probably had some ingrained experience you didn't appreciate having come through party politics. Oh, absolutely. That... Uh, I loved working with my member companies and solving problems for them and being able to make a difference at these state capitals. Um, but here's what I loved. You know, what I realized working for a big corporation is it's like it's a big bureaucratic nightmare. You also, you know, the sort of reputational risks are so ingrained in you that they almost don't even want you testifying anymore. Well, as a lobbyist, like, that's what you want to do. Like, exactly. you want to get out and talk about the issues, and you want to have a, you know, a good debate against, you know, the folks that are working against you. And when I went to, it's now APCIA, but when I went to APCIA, our CEO wanted us to win. So that meant if I needed resources, if I needed to testify, if I needed whatever it was that I needed to win for our members, we got it. If we could make... Obviously, it wasn't just handed over, but if you could make a strong case uh, and you could deliver. Um, so that and decisions were made very quickly. I didn't have to wait for legal counsel and, mm-hmm. you know, all the people that had to weigh in and consider all the pros and cons. I mean, it was really 
we want you to be the leader on the ground. We want you to be the go-to person on the issues. We want you to be successful. So I really, that really resonated with me. And while I went into it sort of thinking I'm only going to do this for a year, in fact, I actually thought I was going to. But you say that, I kind of laughed. Yeah. But it, um, how many times have I thought that myself, yeah. right? But it's good to have an exit strategy, right. or at least a thought. Yeah, well, I mean, and I and thank God for my packing grassroots experience because while I had only lobbied for a year, mm-hmm. um, I was like, look, I can go back to D.C. and run a pack and run a grassroots program. Like I, So my initial plan was like I wanted to have all facets of government relations under my belt, not necessarily knowing what I was going to do with it, but I just knew that it was going to help me yeah. be that much more marketable. And now NABPAC. First of all, how did that opportunity show up on your lap and what made you think this was a good change? So two of the board members, when Jeff announced his retirement, and I had known Jeff. I mean, I, I mean I'd been a member of NAPAC. I mean, I'd worked with Jeff for a long time. Wonderful, wonderful leader for the organization. This is our old mutual friend, Jeff yes. Zebart. Yes, yeah. and Jeff was just a prince of a guy. And obviously, like, you feel, like, very big shoes to fill. And I got a couple of phone calls saying, Jeff was retiring. Would you ever consider this opportunity? No, yeah, that's great. And my first response was, you know, I'm good. <laughs> I actually just had had a baby. I was uh, had a very late-in-life surprise, wonderful blessing. And I had, you know, I, I had my territory down. I was commuting back and forth. I, I actually really loved working in, in New Jersey. It was a great lobby core there challenging on a number of levels but it was a great great group i was like you know i'm good a couple weeks went by and got another phone call could you just come in and talk to us and it was funny i went into that interview and when i left i was like this marries my entire background into one job oh isn't it fascinating and it's so rewarding when that thought finally occurs to you i was like i have to get this job yeah (laughs) so um Fortunately, I did, and, you know, I just celebrated three years in July. What a challenging three years that had to be, though. Six months, seven months in, yeah. That seems like a great segue to a question I like to ask all of my guests. What's a good piece of salient advice that you like to give to young professionals who are either just out of college and trying to make a name in D.C. or someone who's making a career shift? Specifically, if they want to get into lobbying and government relations, you know, I, I tell everyone, and I do a lot of work at the collegiate level, particularly with young women that want to come to Washington, and I say to them, you're not going to make as much money right out of the gate, probably, as your, your friends and your peers coming out of college. Um, you're going to work incredibly long hours. It's not going to be nine to five. Um, and you're going to probably work the hardest you've ever will ever and have ever worked in your life, but the but the the experiences and the relationships. This is a relationship business. Oh, very much so. This town is all about relationships. So I have said from the beginning that those experiences and relationships are worth a gold mine. Yeah, well put. Well, Michaela, I can't thank you enough for joining me here today. I want to thank everybody at Landini Brothers for hosting us. You've been a fantastic guest, Bert. I want to thank you for agreeing to be on the show and look forward to keeping up with you in the years to come. Absolutely, and I could never say no to a fellow Longhorn. So thank you so much, Bill, for the opportunity. My pleasure. Take care.
Did you know virtually all vessels traveling in the U.S. have to be American built, owned, and crewed? That's thanks to the Jones Act, which is the bedrock of the American maritime industry. On the American Maritime Podcast, we cover the topics that matter most to the 650,000 men and women of American maritime, while also being accessible for the average listener to learn about this industry. Every episode features a new guest, including congressional leaders, senior military officials, leading policy analysts, and other experts. Come aboard and listen wherever you get your podcasts or watch on the American Maritime Partnership's YouTube channel.